New writing. New North. writing. New North. writing. North. New writing. You're North. listening to a podcast by New Writing North. North. This episode of the New Writing North podcast was recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. In this episode, New Statesman editor Jason Cowley and Sky News correspondent Lewis Goodall introduce their new books and discuss one of the most turbulent periods in UK political history from the fall of Blair to the rise of Corbyn and Brexit. This discussion is chaired by Dr Claire Sutherland of Durham University. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our event. It's really great to see you here. My name is Claire Sutherland. Um, I'm an academic at Durham University in the School of Politics and International Affairs. It's my pleasure to welcome today our two guests. Uh, First of all, Lewis Goodall. Lewis is um, a Sky journalist. Um, He has worked previously for the BBC, Newsnight, amongst other uh, programmes, and this is his first book. And uh, I also am very pleased to welcome Jason Cowley. Jason Cowley is the editor of The New Statesman. He is a political and literary and sports journalist, and he's widely credited with revivifying uh, the fortunes of The New Statesman, both in print and online. So if we'd like to welcome our guests once more. Let's get started. Uh, Lewis, first of all, if I can ask you, obviously journalism is a very fast-paced profession and writing a book is quite a different thing. So what is it that um, motivated you to write this book now at your age and at this stage in your career? Um, Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, you're absolutely right, uh, first of all, to say that uh, writing a book, as I soon discovered, was considerably harder than basically what I do day-to-day. What I do day-to-day, particularly in sort of television news, basically, as I write in a book, it's basically a series of sugar hits. You turn up, you do a live, you write some analysis for 500 words, you uh, make a package for that night's news, and basically everything that you do, most people in their jobs... They sort of have time horizons of one month or two months or three months, and they work along, along that sort of timescale. Normally, what I do, all of that is compressed into a single day, or maybe, if we're being really, really long-term, a couple of days or even a week to work on something. So this was the absolute antithesis um, of that, and it taught me a lot. The reason I wanted to write the book initially was very different to actually how it ended, which was that when I started, first started thinking about the book in sort of the doldrums of 2016, not long after the uh, referendum result, with... Corbyn solo in the polls, with so much happening to the social democratic left, the decline of the social democratic left, not only in Britain but across Europe and in the United States, it genuinely really, really did seem that social democracy, the Labour Party, could well be on its way out, not actually on a slow, gradual extinction, probably not in one big burst, but much like liberalism did in the early 20th century it just slowly starts to atrophy in declines and is replaced by a sort of populist right and a more mainstream conservative right. Obviously, and I'm glad I didn't finish the book before the 2017 general election, obviously that didn't happen. And that gave me extra impetus to say, well, actually, why hasn't this happened? Because what's so interesting about the Corbyn Labour Party, for all of its virtues and its vices and all of its faults and pros and cons, it is now an outlier, and it's an outlier among the general 
Western left. And so the reason in the end, and I'm glad that I wrote the book, is to try and answer the question of what is different about it. Now, I actually think, and maybe we can come on to this, the things that are different about it aren't necessarily things that the Jeremy Corbyn Labour Party would like to think is different about it. Okay, thank you. We will come on to that. But I'd like to ask Jason, first of all, because um, clearly... Lewis's personal story is, is very much woven throughout his book, but you also decided to start your collection with a personal essay. So could you say something about why you made that decision? Yes. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome. Nice to be here in Durham. Um, yeah, the, the book, which I have um, in my hand, it's a, it's a series of um, essays and long pieces that broadly coincide with the 10 years of my editorship at the New Statesman end of 2008, right through to, through to the present, which um, has been a period of extraordinary upheaval and turbulence, um, beginning with the financial crisis, taking us right through to where we are today when we see um, populist movements rising across Europe and, and the West. But I begin the, the book with a long essay about Harlow Newtown, which was where I grew up, and I was, I was born and grew up, and spent the first 18 years of my life. Now, Harlow was created as one of the new towns uh, in 1946, part of the Newtown Act, the, the Clement Attlee government of 45 through to 51, astonishing government that gave us the welfare state, the National Health Service, um, commissioned the UK's independent nuclear deterrent, the Town and Country Planning Act, and it was part of what became a social democratic um, transformation of society. And my parents um, were from the East End of London, and they, because their education was interrupted by the war, they left school at 15. And in the early 50s, because so much of the East End of London had been bombed, over a million houses were bombed or destroyed um, during the Second World War in London. And the new towns were created partly because of that. They moved out um, to Harlow in Essex, a semi-rural location, where they were able to have a house, a lavatory inside the house, their own garden. And it was really a, a utopian settlement. And I grew up there, had fantastic facilities, extensive network of cycle tracks, very good sports facilities, huge swimming pool, um, eight, eight comprehensive schools. Everything was provided by the state. And as someone once said to me, it was a bit like growing up in the old GDR, the old East Germany, but without the Stasi. But it gives you a sense of, of, of what the town was like. Towards the end of the 70s and into the early 80s, it began to decline because everything was built at the same time. The housing estates, the schools, the doctor's surgeries, the hospital. There hadn't been a second wave of um, investment or capital investment, so the town began to decline. In those early years, it attracted, as well as um, the working classes of East London and North London, it attracted a lot of... Um, aspirational middle-class intellectuals, socialists, communists, um, and they, they created their own micro-communities within, within the town. But their children didn't stay. They left. So in some ways, Harlow, although it's 25 minutes from the stupendous wealth and diversity of London, and only 30 minutes in particular from Liverpool Street Station, the financial centre of London, it was a left-behind town, um, the caricature of the left-behind town, Literally, but also metaphorically, because the, middle, the children of the middle classes left. What brought me back to the town in 2016 was the Brexit vote. Harlow voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. Every district of Essex 
voted for Brexit, and a Polish migrant worker living in the town was attacked and, as it was reported, murdered by a group of young um, local youths in a shopping centre called the Stowe, which was where I used to be taken by my mother to go to the dentist. She'd take me to the dentist, and then immediately afterwards, she'd take me to the local baker's for a, a sugary donut. <laughs> when I mentioned that in the piece, she, she said, oh, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but anyway, the Polish guy, as it was reported, was attacked. He fell over and hit his head about 20 yards on the concrete, about 20 yards from my old dentist's. So the press reported it, reported the case. The local Essex police said it was um, a xenophobic attack, a hate crime. The Polish government sent Polish police to patrol the streets of Harlow, can you believe? The world's media turned up. The New York Times reported that the young man had been kicked to death by a group of rampaging um, teenagers. Actually, when I went back and investigated the attack, it actually turned out not to be a, a racist attack at all. As I explore in the essay, it was um, manslaughter. The Polish chap who was 40 and two friends were drunk. They'd gone to the Stowe shopping centre late at night to buy a pizza. Some young guys on their bikes, aged 16 and 17, too young actually to be named in court, had started to have a little bit of banter. The banter became more aggressive. One of the youths was actually racially abused by the Polish gentleman. One of the boys sneaked behind the um, Polish man and smacked him on the back of the head. One punch, back of the head, and he fell over and banged his head and sadly died. And it was manslaughter established by the courts. So it was reported, and not least because um, Juncker, the president of the European Commission, in his State of the Union addressed in 2016, saying, look, look what's happening to the British. Polish workers are being murdered on the streets of Essex. So this was a very um, strange story, but it attracted me because in some ways I thought Harlow had been maligned and it's the beginning of an essay where I reflect not only on the, the manslaughter of the Polish gentleman, but also the post-war um, dream and what became of it. And some of, some of what you touch on in your, your book as well, Lewis, what became of the utopia for which the progressives of the post-war period reached and how in many ways Harlow, once seen as a utopian settlement, had become a dystopia. Mm. Okay, so I suppose that's the elephant in the room, Brexit mm. and the consequences of, of Brexit. So I suppose turning back to you, Lewis, you talk about a kind of emerging culture war in your book. And as a millennial yourself, is it fair to describe you as such? Um, I just wonder how you feel about that, how you would describe this culture war and how you, you feel about it. I think it's very clear now that we are moving into an era where identity where culture are the defining issues of our politics, where you can basically predict almost exactly how someone is going to vote, their views about things, by their age, by their uh, cultural background, by their educational background, that this is all now much more important than the old divisions, which were mainly about whether you were economically on the left or you were economically on the right, where class was the only thing 
that really mattered was famous sociologist once said, you know, that class was the basis of all British politics, everything else is embellishment and detail. That is just clearly not the case now. There are so many other um, different factors behind it. And there's one story I tell in the book um, where I was at a uh, party, it was on the 23rd of June, 2016, you will all know the significance of that day, it was referendum night, uh, and I was at a party full of other sort of millennial, if I can, yeah, pretty much I'm a, I definitely, <laughs> definitely am a millennial, um, uh, full of other millennial journalists, people that I was working at Newsnight at the time were all there, and people were pretty breezily confident, pretty across the room, that, oh, it's all going to be fine. I remember Nigel Farage, um, uh, very early on, you might remember that night, he came on the screens and said that he thought that the government was probably just about squeaked it. And a child, I'm probably not going to reveal anything particularly <laughs> dramatic about the political preferences of most of the people in that room, but a cheer went up um, uh, around the room. Uh, and then slowly, of course, that started to change. And there's this sort of pallor across the room. This, this group of people, this group of young people, what are often called Generation EasyJet, the idea of national borders not being important, of them having basically as much in common with, with young people who are living in Paris or Lisbon or Milan or wherever it was, suddenly, of course, realised that they had almost nothing in common with people who are living in Middlesbrough or in uh, Birmingham, where I'm from, or indeed from Harlow. And my girlfriend spent much of that evening once the result had, been, had, had, had actually been announced, she spent part of the evening crying. And at that very moment, or just after that very moment, I got a text from my dad. My dad, who was a very traditional Labour voter, working class, worked in industry all his life, made something of his life, had no education, came from a very poor uh, family of um, Irish dockers who then settled in uh, Middlesbrough. And he sent me a text, and he was absolutely triumphant. He said, just said to me, Lewis, you went to sleep a European, and now you've awoken <laughs> an Englishman. And part of me looked at it with part of me responded by thinking, God, I really don't feel I understand my dad. Me and my dad, me and my dad, you know, had always, I would have thought when I went to university that we would have quite similar politics, reasonably similar politics. I mean, he would be slightly more socially conservative than me. I would be slightly more liberal, what you would expect. But then I just looked at that text and I just thought, even though I sort of, I knew that he'd voted to leave, I just thought, even just in that sentence, there's so much of it, there's so much politics that I realise that I've come not to understand. And if I said, and if my dad said that on television, or if I was interviewing him in some street somewhere, vox-popping him, I know that probably perhaps my producer and I would turn to each other and maybe slightly roll our eyes. And so much of the politics of now is basically is explained in that disconnect. And even now, despite two years of talking about it, two years of talking about places like Harlow, all of these places, the truth is so much of it is really sort of political safari. You know, we turn up from London and we go and we talk to a few people and then we go home and think, gosh, it's, it's rough out there, isn't it? And that's a really, really big problem and underlies so much, not just the politics of this country, but around the world as well. And that sort of culture war, that clash of culture, is what's going to continue to define our politics for a long time. And indeed, even, as in my case, within families. Mm. So if I can just follow up on that, I mean, culture war obviously refer, um, is reminiscent of the way it's used in the US. Mm. So do you use that provocatively, or do you really think that we are going to see a polarisation in the UK that is similar to that in the US? Well, I mean, we're already there to some extent. I mean, America, unfortunately, for 
in, in many ways, tends to be a bit of a portent um, of what's to come here. But if you look in terms of everything now, in terms of, look at what's happened to the Conservative and the Labour Party. You can say that it's starting to mirror what has happened to the Democratic and Republican Party. The Democratic Party in America is now basically a party of uh, minorities, of women, particularly black women, but women more generally as well. The Republican Party is essentially a party of older, whiter, more rural, semi-rural voters, non-urban voters. As we saw from the 2017 general election, class has stopped being so important. For the first time, the Conservative Party is basically almost on level pegging with CDT, CDE voters um, in many, many places. We saw that in the local elections as well this year. The Labour Party really struggling to make any headway in places like Southampton or in places like uh, Pudsey near Leeds, all these sort of places where the Labour Party needs to win if they're going to win seats in the next general election. And so much of that was behind Jeremy Corbyn's rather more uh, bread-and-butter conference speech, I think. He knows where the next election is going to be fought and won. It's not going to be in places like Canterbury or university towns and places they won last time. It's going to be in wider Britain. But the Labour Party itself is becoming a party of the urban, of the young, of minorities, not necessarily of the work, just the working class. So we're already there in terms of that culture. I mean, it might... And it, the it issues... already was, wasn't it, Lewis? I mean, under, under Tony Blair, and that was the coalition that swept Blair to power. It was, was not only the, um, the traditional working class vote, but it was... Late, late, from its beginnings, the Labour Party was always an uneasy coalition of what you might call the Fabian intellectual yes. and the organised working class. So there's, there's always been tensions within the party. On, just to go back on to the culture war, which is, a, which is a really interesting issue, I think each of the manifestations of what is being called populism, or national populism in Europe, in America, and in here, have their own local particularities. And I think although Brexit, in some ways, is representative of a culture war, I think the British could have voted to leave the European Union at any time. I mean, Blair said this to me, that he knew that had he called a referendum, even during the boom years, he may have lost. In other words, we may have voted to leave the European Union because the British were always very reluctant joiners of the club. And de Gaulle understood this from the beginning in the, in, when Macmillan first applied um, for British membership of, of the club. De Gaulle vetoed it because he knew the British would always be torn between their kind of the old Commonwealth, their imperial history, Atlanticism, and also, also a desire for the balance of power in Europe to be maintained. And I'm, I voted Remain in, in the referendum, but equally I was what might, you might call a sceptical Remainer. I was probably the most Eurosceptic member of the New Statesman team, although I voted Remain, because I, I can see the problems with the European project. Or the European, here's, here's a bloc that couldn't control its external borders. That's because you're older. I mean, that, it's, 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 it could it's, be, it could be, although if you look at, if you drill down into the data, if, if I just finish the point, then I'll, then I'll address that. Um, the Schengen free, move, free passport zone was a failure, um, and many, many states were uni had unilaterally withdrawn from it. The Eurozone crisis had created um, enormous um, imbalances between the surplus states and the southern economies. I mean, youth unemployment in Italy, Spain, Portugal was running close to 30%. This isn't, this isn't necessarily a, a successful block. And all over Europe, Eurosceptic movements are rising. And I think Barnier and Juncker and others, 
need to ask themselves why. What is it about the European project that um, is forcing so many people to reject it? As for the age demographic, have, we, uh, have you seen a breakdown in data on old versus young voters for the referendum? Yes. Uh, it's overwhelmingly young were, were remain voters. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, but I, I was just going to say, that I, I agree with you to some extent about Brexit. I mean, the, 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 um, the structural causes of Brexit in terms of British Euroscepticism are obviously long established. Uh, you can make a re- very strong argument that perhaps this was going to come or that it could have happened at any time. It could have happened over Maastricht. It could have happened before. I think that's absolutely right. But I suppose in a way, Brexit is not only to some extent... Um, a cause of this, but it's also the fact that it has happened has given this infusion to the culture war, right? So yeah, I don't yeah. think, it, no, it's, I think it's, right. it's not really about the issues. I think many people would agree, and younger voters who are incredibly pro uh, Remain would perhaps agree with some of the structural, it's not structural arguments around Europe, it's not really around Europe, it's just what this basically Remain and Leave have become synonyms for something, they've they become have. ciphers for something, they've become ciphers for closed or open, conservative or liberal, mm. young and old, and so they become cultural identifiers in, frankly, a way that the yeah, Conservative right. Party label, to a lesser extent now the Labour Party label, but certainly the Conservative Party label means much less. Yeah. It could be, though, that the, the, European, the European Union itself is, is fragmenting. Mm. I mean, already you're seeing tensions between the, 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 the Western states and the Eastern states. And within the European Union, we're, we're witnessing the emergence of what people are now calling illiberal democracies in the East, Poland, Hungary, I mean, quasi-authoritarian, if not authoritarian states, um, attacking freedom of press, freedom of the judiciary. So it's, it's, it's a peculiar arrangement at the moment. And it could be that the very block itself begins to unravel under... Because under, someone said, one diplomat said to me, it's going to take the British 10 years to leave, 10 years to realise it was a terrible mistake, and 10 years to get back in. But it may be that in 25 or 30 years, the European Union, as it is now, won't exist. It'll be a completely different group. Or it could even split into East, Western and Eastern, Eastern um, groupings. Well, I mean, that's, Hence the age of upheaval. Well, exactly. What I was going to say, that speaks very much to um, the title of the event, which is the title of your, your book as yes. well. So could you say a little bit more then about, well, what came first? Um, did you come up with this title and then select <laughs> the pieces to go in? Or did you see some kind of coherence in these pieces and then try to find a title to go with it? Could you say something about that selection process? <laughs> I'm revealing my hand here. Um, no, I think what I, what I was aware that as I've been editing the magazine and writing both in The Statesman and, and for other publications, that this, 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 was, this has been an ex, a truly extraordinary period. Um, as I said, beginning, beginning with the financial crisis, then we had this moment of immense hope with the election of Barack Obama in the United States, this extraordinarily fluent... Um, and deliberative and reasonable American liberal who had voted, who in effect was, had voted against or was opposed to the Iraq war. Um, but at the same time, one, got a, one was aware of um, tensions and um, uncertainties and disruptions. And one early indicator was what was happening in Scotland, which interested me greatly, because I've been visiting Scotland since the the 1990s, and what, what struck me, indeed, the late 80s, early 90s, and what struck me in Scotland was that already you had a sense that here, here was a group 
within the United Kingdom that, that was losing confidence in the United Kingdom and losing, losing confidence in the British state. And at this point, many of the people I was meeting and was speaking to hadn't yet embraced nationalism, or indeed the Scottish National Party, but they were disaffected Labour voters. You had Blair was elected in 97 and then introduced devolution to Scotland, but it was only a, it was only a halfway house. And rather than... Um, stopping nationalism, it, it empowered it, it emboldened it. So in, in 2011, when the SNP, for example, won the... Um, and the Holyrood, or the Scottish Parliament, was set up to prevent any one party winning a majority. But when the SNP won their unexpected majority, uh, uh, independence referendum would follow. And in that 2014 referendum in, in Scotland, which was won narrowly by the unionist side, you got many of the tensions and upheavals that we would see later on in the rest of the United Kingdom, particularly in the 2017 general election when so many people moved to Corbynism. Because a lot of people who were attracted by independence weren't necessarily nationalists, or they weren't SNP supporters, but they wanted a new political and economic settlement. They were... They were disaffected from Westminster and what we call in our technical language the neoliberal settlement. And you saw these disruptions and indeed shocks being repeated again and again. And I realised that, because in my role as editor I speak to both sides, left and right. So the long profiles in this book include long conversations with David Cameron, with George Osborne, with Gordon Brown, with Tony Blair, with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, also with political philosophers like Michael Santel. So what I've been trying to do all, all along, and I'm not an ideologue myself, or, or an ardent political supporter, what I've been trying to do is understand and explain the forces in play. And indeed, I think you've tried to do that in your book as well, Lewis. So it's an age of up upheaval, but the, the title indeed came afterwards. And the main title, Reaching for Utopia, comes from the, the opening piece, in the book, the, the Harlow piece. But New Statesman has existed since 1913 um, through two world wars. But by any measure, this is an, a period of extraordinary politics of a kind that you mentioned my age. You know, I'm old enough to have been around a few, a few decades now. I've known, I've known nothing to compare to the last um, five years. And all over Europe, mainstream, as you say, and I'll leave you to speak more about this, mainstream social democratic or socialist parties are being annihilated. Austria, the Netherlands, France, Italy, Germany, the Czech Republic, and so it goes on. And in their place, you're seeing the rise of um, national populist parties, authoritarians. Um, some people, millennials might call them neo-fascists. I think there's a distinction somewhere between neo-fascism and populism. But this indeed is an age of upheaval. And all I'm trying to do is, try and, is make sense of it. Okay. So I want to give you the opportunity. If um, quite near the end of the book, uh, you talk about Mitterrand and you talk about um, his government in 1981. Mm. So... Why did you decide to kind of draw out uh, right at the end from the focus, obviously, on, on Labour and Britain and choose that example in particular? Yeah, so um, towards the end of the book, I, I uh, examined some of the problems that a Jeremy Corbyn government uh, might have, not only in achieving power 
Uh, and I've alluded to some of those things, the fact that the, the terrain of the next general election, assuming that the Labour Party can bank the 30 seats that it gained, and that might be quite difficult because it gained some pretty unlikely seats like Kensington, <coughs> but it's also going to have to win back seats like Mansfield and Stoke and Southampton, and all these sorts of places, as I say, the white and Brexit land, if you like, which has so far been rather resistant to Jeremy Corbyn. So the electoral problems, but also assuming they can overcome that, which... You know, make no mistake about it, would be the most extraordinary turn um, of events, and you would have the first avowedly socialist leader of a major country like uh, since Mitterrand in 1981. And I th thought about Mitterrand mainly for one reason. It was in the Labour Party conference, not just one just gone, back in 2017, uh, when, uh, in Brighton, and the party was in euphoric mood. I mean, uh, totally, understandably, and, you know, you can't, why, um, you know, why not? Just a few weeks before, they were going to be reduced since the worst results since 1931. Corbyn was going to be the undertaker of the Labour Party. He then emerges as its apparent saviour. Uh, and I was at an event in one of the, uh, one of the fringe events uh, with John McDonnell, and he started to talk about, and it became famous a few years later, a few days later, this is an example of my being a bad journalist because I didn't really sort of pick up on it or think about it because I was too busy thinking about what he was saying, which is often a mistake I make. Uh, and he started talking about the fact that if there were a Jeremy Corbyn government, there could be a run on the pound, there could be a run on sterling, that there might be a collapse of confidence and all of this sort of thing. And it almost struck me, one of the reasons I didn't really pick up on it, is because it struck me as self-evidently true, that it could be the case, particularly if a Jeremy Corbyn government came to power and the most likely event, uh, outcome, and the most likely reason that, that that would happen in the short term, at least, is because of some sort of Brexit paralysis, of an inability to get through the House of Commons. That's the best chance that Labour has, rather than waiting all the way till 2022, because the Tories, make no mistake, want to wait until 2022. They will wait till 2032 if they could, uh, rather than go back to the country again. And Mitterrand, obviously, at that time, faced many of these problems. Someone who, in many ways, was not actually nearly as left-wing, or at least didn't have the intellectual pedigree around the left that Jeremy Corbyn does. Mitterrand was a chameleon, someone who uh, reinvented himself on uh, multiple occasions. But nonetheless, he did come in with an avowedly socialist programme involving capital controls, involving nationalisation, involving all of these um, sort of things. And obviously, France at that time, in 1981, of course, in the end, Mitterrand had to reverse. They had to do the tournant de leur regard, the uh, reverse to austerity, uh, basically. At that time, France, by comparison to certainly us now, and by comparison, the global economy was so much less integrated, so much less subject to capital, to, uh, capital flight, so much less subject to the whims of the international markets. Jeremy Corbyn's government, part of Britain, part of uh, Britain at the centre of the internationally globalised world of finance, would find these pressures considerably uh, greater still. And of course, that's not the only thing, as I say, thinking about some of the pressures that a Corbyn government might face. If a Corbyn government were to come to power, it's highly unlikely that it were to do so with any sort of big majority. Highly unlikely to win 60 seats or so. Entirely possible it could be in a minority government situation reliant on SNP votes. What would the price uh, for an SNP, SNP support be? Well, of course, no one in this room needs me to tell you what that could be. Uh, and all of those problems will be very, very substantial. Indeed, potentially the most substantial of any incoming government 
for the last 30 years, certainly since 1979 or potentially since 1974 when Harold Wilson is returned um, in that year. And I think there are elements of the Labour Party and the Corbyn Labour Party that are really engaging with some of this. They really, really know some of that euphoria has drained away. As I say, Jeremy Corbyn's speech at the last conference speech was clearly aimed at some of these new electoral problems that the uh, Corbyn Labour Party is facing because ultimately we shouldn't forget either, despite the euphoria, despite the fact the party is doing much better than it was before, it's not breaking 40 points of the head 40 points in the polls, there is still a situation, partly because of the culture war, actually, partly because it's so much more difficult for either the Labour or the Conservative parties to, as in the old days, when there were a big pool of voters you could swing from one to the other, that pool is increasingly diminished. And it's just much harder for the Conservatives to break out and take Labour voters. And it's much harder for the Labour Party to break out and take these uh, Conservative uh, voters. And as a result, you've got these two parties in stasis. Now, Corbyn has to try and find a way, and the Corbyn Labour Party, also thinking beyond Jeremy Corbyn as well, because he ain't going to be around forever, although if you say that at a Labour Party meeting, they get very, very angry. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is going to be around forever, and they need to start thinking, if they really want to embed Corbynism, which structurally so far they've managed to do very successfully, but if they want to embed it for the long term, uh, then they need to have a longer, long plan. Some of them are indeed thinking about some of that, but of course, people say, well, Corbynism isn't going anywhere, it's Corbyn's party now. It does seem like that, it does seem that way, but of course it seemed that way for New Labour in, say, 2002 or 2001. Yeah. These things do have an ability to reform, and that is what some of them are very scared about. That's one of the reasons why they haven't been able to alight upon a successor or find someone who might be the new Corbyn, because they're afraid if it was, say, someone like Angela Rayner or Rebecca Long-Bailey or someone like that, do they really have his pedigree? Do they really have his cachet? Can they trust them? And the answer on all of the potential successes thus far has been, no, we can't. <laughs> okay. Do you want uh, to add yeah, that? Yeah, I'll say something on... I'm, I think... And Corbynism is, as a phenomenon is, is utterly fascinating and difficult to understand, although I think I'm beginning to understand it more than I did in 2015. And I think... So when you began your book, you wrote with the expectation that Labour would be annihilated under Corbyn at the next election. Is that right? Or, or certainly fair badly, yeah. Or fair badly. As, and I think that was genuinely among media commentators um, the received opinion. Mm. I mean, I, I, I thought that would happen too. Um, clearly in 2015... So what happened was Ed Miliband went into the election in 2015 expecting to emerge from it against David Cameron and the coalition as Prime Minister whether it would be the largest party in a hung parliament, even on the night of the general election 2015, when the exit poll came out on television, I understand that he, he couldn't believe it was true. He just couldn't believe it because he expected to be prime minister. So the, I didn't think he'd win, but nevertheless, the Labour Party were in shock. Then they, um, Ed Miliband resigned immediately, and the people who came forward to stand were Annie Burnham, Liz Kendall, who ran as a... Um, a sort of uber Tony Blairite, and Yvette Cooper, who ran as a kind of machine politician without any... Forgive me if there are any fans of Yvette here, but she ran without any real enthusiasm. And from the very extreme <coughs> marginal left of the party came Corbyn. And he only just got on the ballot because many MPs who lent him their vote to get him on the ballot said, we wanted to widen or broaden the debate. But during that summer of 2015, I think something remarkable happened. And Corbyn unlocked something that had been long repressed on the left. And a lot of young people were inspired by his anti-austerity rhetoric. 
by his consistency, his principles, his left-wing positions, and also many older Labour voters who had been alienated by Tony Blair and the Iraq war returned to the party. Plus, you had this whole group of people who came over from the Liberal Democrats. Don't forget that until the coalition government, the Liberal Democrats were winning more than what, 55, 60, 60, even more than 60 seats. And many of their supporters were anti-war war activists. They came over to Corbyn as well. And what's often forgotten, I think misunderstood by Ed Miliband in 2015, Nigel Farage's um, UKIP insurgency, Ed Miliband just dismissed it as a kind of right-wing phenomenon. But Farage won 4 million votes in 2015. They got one MP in 2015. Under a proportional system, UKIP would have had 75, 80 MPs. I mean, can you imagine that? 75, 80 um, UKIP MPs in the House of Commons. And no one here is cheering at that prospect. Um, so I'm, I think I'm safe to say you, you, you wouldn't have fancied that. But come 2017 and the general election, where did those 4 million UKIP voters go? Actually, about a million of them went over to Corbyn because there was always within the coalition of UKIP supporters some left-wingers, what you might call red UKIP. And somehow, and this is what has taken me a long time to accept and understand, because I always dismissed Corbyn and his faction as cranks, Benite cranks. Um, I don't think John McDonnell is a crank. I actually think he's a deeply interesting um, politician, probably the most substantial politician on any of the two front benches at the moment. But clearly Corbyn unlocked and enabled something because he rejected the consensus, the neoliberal consensus, and excited and enthused so many people. Going into that 2017 general election, Labour were about 27, 28% in the polls. And over a six-week campaign, what did they end up um, polling? 40%? 40%, 40% yeah. Extraordinary transformation, which is why now, although they're only at about 36 in the polls, they're very happy with that. Because once a campaign begins, and the impartiality rules begin, and the BBC has to give fair coverage to the Labour Party, they believe they can emerge as the largest party, at which point much of your analysis comes into play. Will they be beaten back by the markets? Will their programme be destroyed by capital flight? All of which lies in the future. But Corbynism, I think, is here to stay. They've taken over the party. They're in control of the National Executive Committee. They have the support of the members and the activists. What they don't yet have is the parliamentary party, but that may change in time. So I, I would say um, a few things about that. I think, I think much of that is right. There are some caveats. So I think, first of all, I think some of the arguments... There's no doubt whatsoever that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has succeeded, partly by design, partly by accident, in transforming the nature of our political debate. Mm. In 20, recently, it's 2015, only three years ago, both parties go into that general election arguing for cuts, including the Labour Party, including Ed Miliband. In fact, interestingly, I'll come on to this in a moment, to be honest, there isn't that much difference between Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn's position at the, those two elections, but rhetorically, it was very, very um, different. Uh, so that is true, it's transformed the debate. There isn't that much evidence to suggest that the British public have changed their mind, particularly, on many of these issues around austerity and around public spending. Look at the polls that are done in 2015 and compare them to now. There is almost no difference whatsoever when you ask them about questions around the deficit, around questions about the debt, questions around whether the government should be reining in or increasing public spending. Some marginal differences, 
but no substantial differences. The difference between the 2015 and the 2017 general election is that the Conservative Party stopped asking the questions on austerity. It stopped asking the questions that had been so electorally <coughs> successful in 2015. Instead, they started asking a whole series of other questions around Brexit, around culture, around all of these things that actually the Conservative Party was really ill-equipped to deal with and indeed provoked a liberal counter-reaction to. Um, David Cameron and George Osborne, one of the reasons that their political project was so successful, and it was so successful right up until the moment that it all imploded, one of the reasons it was so successful is that they managed to reduce all of politics to a tiny set of parameters, absolutely tiny. If you remember the 2015 general election, it was basically about whether you know, the government should have uh, increased like, a couple of billion pounds of public spending in terms of cuts from one party to the other. They reduced... If, if Ed Miliband had suggested spending 50 quid on a new pair of net curtains for Downing Street, they would have said he was a communist and said that they would, you know, Britain would lose its credit rating in 15 seconds flat. <coughs> they reduced, essentially, the possibilities of politics. They said, and David Cameron was incredibly successful in basically just saying, there is only one option, and it is mine. Anything else is an impossibilist fantasy. What did the Conservative... And that worked for them. What did the Conservative Party then proceed to do? Engage in the biggest impossibilist fantasy that, that exists in the, terms, in the sense of Brexit, in the sense of then saying, wow, actually, we've got our own project of our own. And that has expanded the options of politics. Mm. That has allowed Corbyn to come in, because now Corbyn and McDonald can stand but up and say... But already come in, hadn't he, in 2015, even before David... Da it, it happened within the Labour Party, yes, yeah, but yeah. I mean in terms of the public. Within yeah, the Labour yeah. Party, you're right, and I think you're absolutely yeah. right. I think the yeah. reason Corbyn comes in in the Labour Party is quite yeah. different to the public, yeah. in the sense that in the Labour Party, well, virtually every, you mentioned the other candidates, they represented all streams of the Labour Party that had been exhausted. Yeah. You know, the social, the, the, the social democratic left, you might say, the soft left, Andy Burnham and Cooper, exhausted. They had yeah, nothing, nothing to say. say. Liz Kendall, Blairite Wright, looked like she hated her own party. Nothing to say. Corbyn, at least, was untainted. He represented part of the Labour Party that was untainted. But for the public, the, what the, it is the Conservatives, not as much as anything else, so much as anything that Corbyn has done, which has allowed Corbynism to at least get a hearing because their, their actions and the way that they've engaged in Brexit has basically expanded the menu of political options yeah. that exist. Michael Patillo said of David Cameron's decision to call his referendum on Europe and then lose it in 2016, the greatest blunder ever made by a British Prime Minister. And Portillo said this um, as a Brexiteer. Mm. But he said if, he if Cameron really believed that um, leaving the European Union was a, a source of great um, risk and potential catastrophe for the British economy, he should never have called the referendum. He didn't have to call it. Um, we are a representative democracy. It was an extraordinary gamble, but it comes from Cameron's sense of overconfidence, his entit entitlement, his insouciance. Well, on that note, I think it's time <laughs> <laughs> to go over to you. So I'm sure there are questions for um, our speakers. The beginning of the debate that you were having uh, might well have been seen as uh, not understanding the age of upheaval, but understanding Brexit to a certain extent, because it seems to have subsumed the political agenda in this country. Mm. I would like just to take a very narrow area and ask your view on it, and that is there are still some people whose um, perception of the current situation is that if we did have another um, vote uh, and we voted to stay in, 
that we would revert to where we were. And my perception is that that, that wouldn't happen. We've now evoked the appropriate um, clause of the EU. Technically, we're out, and we're just sorting out the detail of that. Um, and we could find that although I was an, an arch supporter of staying in, that we could find ourselves with the worst of two worlds. And in fact, um, we should stay where we are and get the best out of this negotiation, even though I'm dead against it, because if there was a, a reverse situation occurred, uh, we could find ourselves even worse off. Thank you. Mm. Would you like to comment on that, uh, Lewis? Would you like to um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's lots of potential outcomes if there were a second referendum. Of course, uh, Remainers might want to be careful what they wish for because it seems entirely plausible to me impossible that, that not only would there would be a second vote to leave, but it could be much greater because the instinct from the elements of the British public might be well to say, and that you can imagine the campaign that Leave Mark II would run, which is to say, look, they've treated us like this. This just shows what a rotten institution it is. Sent, uh, stick two fingers up to them. Um, in which case, then, presumably, we might be heading not just in terms of whatever deal Theresa May manages to cobble, cobble together, but our very hard or WTO-type Brexit. So that's a potential um, outcome as well. Generally, I think you're absolutely right to say that one of the reasons that Theresa May has acted in the way that she did, she did and has done is because she has, and I think this is a legitimate thing, she has been very wary of what a, either a second referendum or the appearance of the reversal of the referendum or not honouring the referendum in any way would do to the democratic fabric of this country. Now, you can be the most arch remainder in the world, but it seems to me indisputable to say that there would be a considerable uh, backlash if the perception was that the referendum mandate of the referendum weren't carried out. The problem for Theresa May has been from the start is that she, in, she had an opportunity when she became Prime Minister to really define the terms of the referendum. She chose to define them in the narrowest terms possible. She chose from the very start to use, well, of course, her phrase, Brexit means Brexit, we're going to make a success of it, which, of course, she interpreted to me, and I think egged on rather by her then advisor, uh, Nick Timothy, to say that it must mean leaving the single market, it must mean leaving the customs union, it must mean no oversight of the ECJ. She set herself a series of incredibly difficult tasks for her to meet, and she's basically spent the last two years slowly, little by little, trying to resolve from them. But the problem for her has been that these were the tests she set herself. And that is where Checkers comes from. If you put all of the inputs that she, that she basically said and all of those requirements and put them into a sort of Brexit function machine, it comes out with something as unwieldy and a bit odd and difficult and unpalatable as checkers. And that's the problem for her, and that's what's going to play out over the next couple of weeks. Should we take another question? <laughs> Brexit no. is. Take another question. It's a good question, that one. Um, gentleman at the back there, yeah. Is a lot of this to do with, on both sides of the Atlantic, we have politicians who are nothing less than professional politicians. And we seem to have jumped from a population that had some life experience and had done things other than politics to politicians on both sides of the pond who have done nothing else. And thus, is their perspective wide enough for the challenges that face those countries? It's a good question. I, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, I guess against that is you would say Trump is not a professional politician and, um, you know, whatever he is, you know, you, you'd have your, um, your own views on, on the great man. Um, he's not a career politician I and mean, he's a maverick who, 
who ran, a, ran has been a Democrat, has now embraced the Republican Party. Um, but what we did have, certainly in this country, you did have a, a, the professionalization of politics and a certain type of individual. If you think back a, a few years, we had Nick Clegg, who was leader of the Liberal Democrats, Westminster School, and I think Cambridge. You had David Cameron, um, leader of the Conservative Party, Eton and Oxford, and you had Ed Miliband, although he went to um, a comprehensive in London, he went to a, a fashionable comprehensive in London, um, and then, then also Oxford. But in, some, in many ways, despite the sort of gradations of the English class system, they were pretty much interchangeable. And I've, I've got um, an essay in this book, which is called The Golden Generation, which is about that group of young advisors who gathered around um, Tony, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown at the beginning of the, their time in government. So I'm talking about the two Millibands, Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, can you name any more? James Pennell, um, Douglas Alexander. All of them, basically. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were special advisors. They then were given safe seats. They were then fast-tracked into the cabinet. So by the time they reached their late 30s and early 40s, their expectation would be that they weren't only running the Labour Party, they would be running the country. So it was a, it was a kind of arrogant sense of entitlement and that has been destroyed by um, the Corbyn takeover of the Labour Party. And partly that's a reaction, sir, against what you talk about, the professionalisation of um, politics. Okay. Um, gentleman at the back. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about the rise of Corbyn. I think particularly the mainstream media, right up to the result, missed it. You know, the, uh, across the board, apart from um, predicting the rise up to 40% of the polls. And during the campaign, there were two particular things. One, the manifesto when it was leaked, that um, there was a spike in voting for Labour because young people want radical change in this country. And the Labour manifesto and the vision of socialism was the first time that had been heard, probably arguably since uh, Michael Footster. Um, and the other thing was when the Cor Corbyn, which is possibly a big risk after the Manchester bombing, called out maybe it has something to do with our foreign policy, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan. <clears throat> so I do think the mainstream media across the board but missed it. And I think that I was at the Labour conference in Liverpool and I still think there's a lot of enthusiasm and passion for those politics. So, uh, what, what's your view on, on that? Because you're kind of saying, I mean, we, it's a very difficult situation at present, but I, th I think that movement is still on the rise, basically. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think the 2017 general election was an interesting example, at least for me, uh, I want to speak for other journalists, but for me, in the dangers uh, of not listening to what you're finding yourself. Because I spent the 2017 election literally going up and down the country, you know, not travelling with Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn on those awful sort of buses and those sort of things, but actually just talking to voters. And everywhere, and it didn't start, the campaign didn't start like this, but as the weeks wore on, I remember going to do a piece in Hartlepool where you remember that uh, from 2015, the majority was 3,000. There was a huge UKIP vote. In fact, they came second in 2015. The Tories had their eye on it. They thought it was the first time that they could win it since 19. 
64. They just needed to eat into that UKIP vote. Uh, and Hartlepool's not far from where my uh, dad's from in uh, Middlesbrough, so I know it reasonably well. And I just went, we went into this piece in this bingo hall uh, and just spoke to just family after family after family. And every single one of them said, well, I've voted Labour, um, UKIP last time, or I think about voting Tory, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think I'm going to vote Labour. And this was someone, and I did another piece from back home in Birmingham where I grew up. Again, very marginal constituency in uh, Northfield in the south and Birmingham Erdington, which was a big target seat, not least because Nick Timothy, a chief advisor at the time, was from there and thought that it was a quintessential sort of working class seat that the Tories were going to win in a huge realignment time and time again. And I then wrote a piece at the very end, on the eve of the election, saying all of this. And then I wrote a line saying, of course, Theresa May could well get a big majority. <laughs> and I just thought, and afterwards I just thought, well, why? Why did I do that? Because it is the danger of the kind of, as you say, I mean, I don't really like the phrase mainstream media, but certainly the sort of groupthink, which is very, very strong all the time, particularly amongst lobby correspondents and lobby journalism, and that's a whole different conversation and the inadequacies mm. of lobby journalism, but it is very, very, very strong. And it's a salutary lesson, that election, like so many other things, in actually just trying to at least believe what you're finding yourself on the ground. Okay. Any ladies want to speak? We haven't had... Uh, good yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Lady down here. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's just a point um, that Jason made uh, when you described the first anecdote um, when you were talking to us about the possible racist attack on the Polish man. Yes. Well, okay, you know, point taken about that anecdote, but... Do you not accept that racist attacks have and, and abuse has risen um, a lot? Uh, I, I don't know the exact statistic, but um, since this the EU referendum, the, I, I have read that the statistics show that uh, race, racist abuse has risen. Just wondered if you had a comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're absolutely correct. Um, I think the, the referendum <clears throat> kind of unlocked or unleashed forces of xenophobia that one would rather have been, they'd been kept inside um, Pandora's box. So, so no doubt about it, it's emboldened racists, xenophobes, bigots. Um, and, you know, one of the things I always thought growing up in this country was that although we've had um, periods of um, distressing periods, um, particularly I remember as a young boy in the 1970s going to football matches and witnessing the abuse of black players, in particular the minority of black players who were then playing, and you know, it, was a, it, was a, it was a terrible thing. And those, those early players were pioneers and very, very brave. But I also thought we were one of the more dignified countries in, in, in Europe and, and indeed the world. And no doubt about it, the... The, the kind of coarsening of the public disc discourse, which has followed the referendum, but also the, the um, social media and the way that empowers um, bigots, but also creates a kind of polarised and aggressively polarised discourse, um, is, is, very much, is very much there, and it's true, and I regret it profoundly. Got time for one or two more questions. Um, so the gentleman in the baseball cap down here. Um, how much faith do you think we can put in the current polls at the minute based as they are 
on the assumption that the next election will be a May versus Corbyn contest. And I think it's fair to say that May probably won't lead the Tories into the next election. And do you think that bodes well or poorly for the Labour Party? Yeah, it was something I was going to say um, earlier. Absolutely uh, right. One of the problems for the uh, Corbyn Labour Party is that the next election is unlikely to be fought, not likely to be fought by... (coughs) Uh, Theresa May, although that is by no means certain, because as I say, the most likely scenario that Corbyn comes to power anytime soon is a sort of Brexit apocalypse uh, where nothing can get through the House of Commons. May has no choice but to go to the country. That probably seems still relatively slim. They might prefer to have a second referendum than that, but it is possible, in which case it seems very likely that she would be the leader because there just wouldn't be time to elect another Conservative Party leader instead. But that would be a very anomalous election, it would obviously be entirely Brexit dominated and dominated by the question or not of whether she should, could uh, get a deal. If that doesn't happen, then it seems much likelier that yes, the next election will be in 2022. And as I said earlier, that poses one problem, which is Jeremy Corbyn's longevity. He will have not only be rather old by British standards for a political leader, but also he will have been around a long time. If it goes on until 2022, then he will have been leader since 2015, seven, eight years. Difficult to see how he can continue that sense of insurgency. It's not impossible, but it is um, a challenge. And indeed, there will be a different Conservative Party leader. And it's difficult to imagine that they will not uh, fight that election campaign in a rather different way than they fought in 2017 and it seems unlikely that they will make the same mistakes and missteps that Theresa May had. She is clearly someone who is not equipped, bit of a problem for an elected politician this, is not equipped for the necessities and difficulties of the campaign stump in a way that say Cameron was good at or Blair was good at or indeed Jeremy Corbyn is very good at because Corbyn has spent basically much of the last few years doing that, partly because he had to fight elections in his own party uh, virtually every other year. Uh, but he was tried and he was tested. May was not. Whoever is leader next time, very unlikely that the Conservative Party will not have an election contest. They won't make that mistake again. And whoever it is, is um, will be better than that. Just one very quick other thing. It seems highly likely to me as well that the next election will be fought in an even more polarised fashion than it was before in terms of the new parties. Why do I say that? Well, Corbyn will presumably be there, or someone from the Labour left will be there. But it seems to me just impossible. People used to talk about Amber Rudd becoming Mm. Conservative leader or someone like that on the Liberal Cameroon wing. With what's happening to the Conservative Party membership now, I just made a piece about this the other week, with all the old UKIP refuseniks going back, the Conservative Party membership is moving to the right, it's expanding. It seems very difficult to me to see how whoever emerges from that leadership contest is not someone who is currently considered to be on the right. The Brexit are right, but also the right of the Conservative Party. Does he have blonde hair and a (laughs) very, very posh voice? Who knows where he is? What I would ask you to do is, first of all, to thank our speakers. You've been listening to the New Writing North podcast, recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council event produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. New Writing New North. Writing New North. Writing North. New Writing You're North. listening to a podcast New by Writing New Writing North. North.